Hello and welcome. I'm Eric. And I'm John. And this is the Wikipedia Chronicles. This is a podcast where we start with a random article, explore it, then follow links and see where it takes us. John, what do you have today? My article today is Heartbreaker, an album by the OJs, released in 1993. Unfortunately, that is also the article. There are titles of songs, and I mean, you know, they're of course an R&B and soul band under the EMI label, but beyond that, uh, there's nary another way to get out of this article, so it's kind of a backdoor to nowhere. Uh, anyway, Eric, what do you got over there? I have Iverse Iversen Fjellet. Uh, what? What was that last part? <laughs> <laughs> Iversen Fjellet. It is the highest mountain of Hopin in the Svalbard Archipelago. It has a height of 371 MASL and is located at the southern portion of Hopin. The mountain is named after fisheries consultant Thor Iverson. See also Cap Thor, the southernmost point of Hopin, was also named after Thor Iverson. I don't know, Eric. This is this is tough because I, 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 we we literally literally just did mountain climbing. <sighs> yeah, that's true. Now, I mean, we can go to do like use mountains in, different fa- in a different fashion, or like go to the country well, that mountains in. To be honest, the only links here are to places places yes there's not a link to mountain there's not a link to fisheries there's a link to consultant thor iverson uh-huh uh, but there's only links to hopin svalbard and masl what is an masl anyway you said the you know what that let's is go to this article <laughs> because all right what's the name of this what's the name of this mountain iver i-v-e-r-s-e-n F J E L L E T. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, wow. Um cool. Now that was the thing that threw me off when you read about the when you went through the article the first time was you said that it's a three hundred and seventy one MASL tall. <laughs> yep. Yeah, great. What the heck is an MASL? Well uh, I don't yep. have no I have no frame of reference. We could find out. All right, let let's us. let's do that. Uh huh. Meters above sea level is what MASL means. No wonder the article was so short. The mountain itself is only about what three thousand meter, three thousand feet tall. Three, uh, yeah. So it's not like a huge, huge mountain. It's it's big, but it's not any larger. Like I'm pretty sure there are some 
mountains even on the east coast that rival yeah. that. So we're not talking a huge mountain here. Mm-mm. So it, basically, this MASL is um, the standard of metric measurement in the meters of elevation. Obviously, reference to sea level. I mean, it's literally how many meters above sea level is this thing. And they use it for uh, towns, mountains, landmarks, buildings, structures, and flying objects like airplanes. So there's like five different abbreviations that are used commonly for this. There's uh, MAMSL, or the capitalized version of MAMSL, (laughs) M-A-M-S-L, based on the abbreviation AMSL, which is above mean sea level. And then, of course, you've already encountered the other abbreviation that's commonly used, MASL, M-A-S-L. Now, normally, this is determined in meters above sea level of an object, location, or point uh, in several different ways. Either it's by GPS, which triangulates the location in reference to multiple satellites. It could be in reference to altimeters, uh, typically measuring atmospheric pressure. Uh, There's aerial photography as a means of determining... Location and also surveying. Accurate measurement of historical mean sea levels is complex. Landmass subsidence, as occurs naturally in some islands, can give the appearance of rising sea levels. Conversely, markings on land masses that are uplifted due to geological processes can suggest a lowering of mean sea level. So, in other words, it's not a super reliable measurement. It's not. <laughs> Very accurate. Yeah, it's just kind of like a ballpark. Sea level can change. Yeah, it's, uh, it changes daily. Yeah, in point of fact. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's not great to have a system measurement that is dependent on another thing. Yeah, that is not <laughs> resolute yeah. in what it is. <laughs> it's nice to have like this is this many feet tall all the time. All the time. Always. <laughs> It really It'll doesn't matter. Change. Doesn't matter how much water shows up. It's yep. that tall from the ground up. That's it. Because like, if you know, the whole world gets pretty flooded, this mountain could only be like two masl. Yeah, it and may not be, like, <laughs> and that really doesn't tell you the whole story. That's the tip yeah. of the iceberg. Or I suppose at that point, underwater mountain. Yes. So. Which there are those, and I those wonder. Those do exist. This could not possibly be a good system of measurement for underwater mountains. No, you have to do the opposite, like so below yeah. sea level. I'm really not sure why, but that wouldn't really work because they don't start at sea level usually. No, but at the same time, like having a negative measurement on a mountain that might mm. actually be like 8,000 meters tall, just in the middle of a trench underneath <laughs> the ocean, seems like a bad system. It just doesn't seem like yeah, even for top- topographer topography purposes, this doesn't seem to be the most logical go-to means, but um, whatever, I mean, hey, we've discovered a flaw in the metric system. (laughs) Somebody used the metric system for something that's not great. In America, we just say feet above sea level. Mm. Use that. But I feel like we we also... Really, we just do away with the metric of sea level. Right. (laughs) I feel like we also don't typically 
here of mountains measured as in reference to sea level. Yeah, usually like just you just assume it's, it's this many this tall. Whatever's tall. Yeah. Yeah. Like from the base of the mountain to the top of the mountain. Yeah, I mean, you use I've seen above the sea the above sea level measurement used for like to, again topography, but like. When you're talking about a singular freestanding object, you just give the measurements of that object. Yeah. Mountain or otherwise. Doesn't really make a difference. Oh, well. Uh, let's see. We actually have a few interesting links we can mm -hmm. go to from here. Um, yeah, we kind of uh, have a little bit of a range here. We really do. So we could delve into, like, aerial photography or satellites... We could figure out the intricacies of global positioning system, Ooh. or airplanes, or climate change, all sorts of stuff. Huh. Well, let's see. This, this actually opens up some pretty interesting possibilities, then. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I like satellites, and I like uh, airplanes. Yeah. Those are fun. Yeah. But there's also, like, climate change is, like, pertinent. Yeah. Like, I'm not, we're not going to deliver any sort of breaking news by way <laughs> yeah, of right. reading the Wikipedia article, but it'd be interesting to look into. Hmm. Now, I wonder if satellites could lead us to things like the Hubble Telescope, which is technically a satellite. I think we should go satellite just because I feel like it could lead us to some of the other things that we mm. are interested in in this article, but that is true. not take us too far away from them. I could be wrong, but at the very least, that'd be, it'd be worth checking out, I think. Okay. Alright, satellites. So, if you don't know what satellite is, it is a thing that has been placed into space um sometimes called artificial satellites because they're they also call moons satellites but they're just natural satellites so um the first artificial satellite was the sputnik one launched by the soviet union in 1957 and all of america panicked they did since then, though, thousands of satellites by all nations, mostly America and Russia, have been launched into orbit around the Earth. Some satellites, notably space stations, have been launched in parts and assembled in orbit. Which is cool to think about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that we're that far along. <laughs> we're getting close. We're getting close let's to Star Trek. Let's just send an Amazon package up to the astronauts and have them put it together up there. Yeah, let's just keep doing that. It's like little tiny packages until we have something really cool. And then we can build a real enterprise. <laughs> both as a business and as a ship. <laughs> so, there are about a thousand satellites that are currently operational. Whereas thousands of unused satellites and satellite fragments order the orbit the Earth as space debris. Hmm. And a few space probes have been placed into orbit around other bodies and become artificial satellites to the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, 
Vesta, Eros, Ceres, and the Sun. We have uh, sent a satellite to orbit the Sun, apparently. I did not know that. Hey, it's a pretty important thing to observe. So I didn't may, know that we could well. actually like build something that could withstand that kind of intense heat. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be like very close to the sun. That's Earth orbits the sun, so that's true. You can you can keep it far away and still keep it in orbit, but I don't know like how far away you'd have to keep it before another planet could come mm. along and just be like, "Sup, I'm taking you," and yeah. then, like move it. <laughs> Now, of course, satellites are propelled by rocket into their uh, orbits. Generally speaking, the launch vehicle itself is a rocket uh, lifting off from a launch pad on land. In a minority of cases, satellites are launched at sea from, say, a submarine or aboard a mobile maritime platform. Uh, And occasionally, they're even launched by plane in which a plane could air launch them into orbit. Satellites are usually semi-independent computer-controlled systems. Satellite subsystems attend many tasks, such as power generation, thermal control, telemetry, altitude control, and orbit control. Hmm. Oh, boy. (laughs) Some of these little gifts down here making me have my eyes cross. (laughs) Let's delve into the history a little bit, shall we? Yeah. That'll be fun. The uh, first fictional depiction of a satellite being launched into orbit is a short story by Edward Everett Hale, The Brick Moon. And that was in 1869. Wow. So back then they were already getting the ball rolling on thinking about this. And then uh, obviously Jules Verne also tackled the subject in 1879. Uh, in 1903, a guy by the name of Constantine So Well, we've gone, we've gone for a pretty long time <laughs> without having to have an issue. Constantine Tsiolkovsky published Exploring Space Using Jet Propulsion Devices in uh, 1903. Jet propulsion devices as a concept in 1903. What? <laughs> Where did this time traveler come from to publish a book about jets in 1903? We didn't even have airplanes yet. Slow down yeah, there, bud. Um, but that's the first uh, academic treatise on the use of rocketry to launch hmm. spacecraft back in 1903. Uh, he calculated the orbital speed required for a minimal orbit of... The Earth at 8 kilometers per second. And that a multi-stage rocket fueled by liquid propellants could be used to achieve this. He proposed the use of liquid hydrogen and liquid nitri- li- liquid oxygen. Ooh, wrong element. Through, uh, though other combinations can be used. So he really got the ball rolling on this, uh, like, the whole idea of how we actually do that. <laughs> Yeah, and like, uh, there's a picture of him off to the right. Look how much he looks like Doc Brown with like a good tea. <laughs> yeah. And glasses. He looks like a time traveler. Oh, yeah, definitely. He's got the... Yeah, those glasses are... Those are intense. <laughs> it's like a monocle, like with the little chain, but... There's two of them. Obviously, it's like... <laughs> they just connect in the weirdest way possible. They're, like, they're barely connected. Like They go out of their way to be <laughs> as unconnected as they are. 
What would you call... I mean, obviously it's called glasses, but what would you call a monocle, but like two lenses? Like a, a binocle? Binocle, yeah. <laughs> binocle. I mean... <laughs> yeah. So obviously there's like binoculars, but I don't know, I guess binocle makes sense. So people continued kicking this idea around because, I mean... Saying that you want to take a bunch of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, stick it in a tube, and then have that <laughs> lit in fire and sent into space is one thing. Having the means available to do that, that's something else. In 1928, Slovenian Herman Potocnik uh, published his sole book, The Problem of Space Travel, The Rocket Motor. And that was the problem. <laughs> a plan for a breakthrough into space and a permanent human presence there. He conceived of a space station in detail and calculated its geostationary orbit. He described the use of orbiting spacecraft for detailed, peaceful, and military observation of the ground and described how the special conditions of space could be useful for scientific experiments. The book described geostationary satellites, as was first put forward by our friend Constantine, and he also discussed communication between them and the ground using radio. Uh, but he fell short of the idea of using satellites for mass broadcasting and as telecommunication relays. It's amazing how early people think of things that are actually real yeah, possibilities. We keep coming across. <laughs> we keep coming across that. Like the history articles are always the history portions of these articles are always so fascinating to yeah. see. Like how long we've been doing like kicking around basically the same ideas, mm. and then eventually. Way, way, way down the road, somebody actually comes along and actually does something good <laughs> and modern with it. But it takes forever sometimes. I mean, at least this was only like 60 years, really, between yeah. the times it was talked about in the feasible capacity and the time it was actually done. That's pretty good. That's not as bad as some of the other things we've seen, <laughs> like hydraulics. Like, good lord. Oh, yeah. That's a while for people to really like, realize the potential there. Uh, in 1945... Uh English science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke, who you might know as the writer of 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, he described in detail the possible use of communication satellites for mass communications, aka the internet, maybe? Mm. And, uh, like TV. Yeah, that too. Uh, Clarke examined the logistics of satellite launch possible orbits, and other aspects of the creation of a network of world-circling satellites, pointing to the benefits of high-speed global communications. He also suggested that three geostationary satellites would provide coverage over the entire planet. The U.S. military studied the idea of what was referred to as the Earth Satellite Vehicle, when Secretary of Defense James Forrestal made a public announcement on December 29, 1948, that his office was coordinating that project between various sources, services. But yeah, Arthur C. Clarke um, can kind of see how he made 2001 such a good thing. Yeah, because he was literally <laughs> on the forefront of planning this whole thing out. He yeah. was one of those guys who was... He was writing fiction, but he was also literally calculating <laughs> how this would happen if yeah. somebody had the resources to come along and do it. Mm -hmm. Now, that was just the thing. Was it, I think it was more of a resources thing. Like Countries were yeah. like, 
the only entities with enough power behind them to really get this kind of thing done. And until the Cold War, there wasn't really anybody willing to do it. Now, of course, the next portion of the article is where we finally get into that, and, and Russia, where everything kicks into high gear. <laughs> yeah, it kicks in twelfth gear actually. Like, <laughs> it goes fast. Uh, Sputnik One was, of course, launched on October fourth, nineteen fifty-seven, as part of the Soviet Sputnik program, where Sergei Korolev, as chief designer, uh, there is a crater on the lunar far side which bears his name, apparently. Uh, this in turn triggered the space race. Uh, Sputnik 1 helped to de- identify the density of high atmospheric layers through measurement of its orbital change and provided data on radio signal distribution in the ionosphere. The unanticipated announcement of Sputnik 1's success precipitated the Sputnik crisis in the United States and ignited the so called space race. Which is basically what the above paragraph said already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sputnik 2 was launched on November 3rd, 1957, carrying a passenger dog named Lakia, uh, because the Soviets just felt like really making us angry. <laughs> um, in May of 1946, Project RAND had released the preliminary design of an experimental world-circling spaceship, which stated a satellite vehicle with appropriate instrumentation can be expected to be one of the most potent scientific tools of the 20th century. The United States has been had been considering launching orbital satellites since 1945 under the Bureau of Aeronautics of the United States Navy. The United Hmm. States Air Force's Project RAND eventually released the above report, but did not believe that the satellite was a potential military weapon. Rather, they considered it to be a tool for science, politics, and propaganda. In 1954, the Secretary of Defense stated, I know of no American satellite program. In February of 1954, Project RAND released scientific uses for a satellite vehicle written by R.R. Carhart. The, this explained the potential scientific uses for satellite vehicles, which was followed in June 1955 with an article entitled The Scientific Use of an Artificial Satellite by H.K. Coleman and W.W. Kellogg. Hmm. In the context of activities planned for the International Geophysical Year 1957 through 1958, the White House announced on July 29, 1955, that the U.S. intended to launch satellites by the spring of 1958. This became known as Project Vanguard. On July 31st, the Soviets had announced they intended to launch a satellite by the fall of 1957, not to be outdone. And then, uh, following pressure from the American Rocket Society, the National Science Foundation and the International Geophysical Year. Military interest picked up in early 1955, and the Army and the Navy were working on Project Orbiter, two competing programs. The armies, which involved using a Jupiter-C rocket, and the civilian Navy Vanguard rocket to launch a satellite. At first, they failed. Initial preference was given to the Vanguard program, whose first attempt at orbiting a satellite resulted in the explosion of the launch vehicle on national television. Embarrassing. Yeah. But finally, three months after Sputnik 2, the project succeeded. Explorer 1 became the United States' first artificial satellite on January 31st, 1958. I'm surprised that the Navy was involved with rocket stuff. I don't know. 
I mean, back I'm, in the day, before NASA, I think, like, any of the branches of the military could have really been like... That's true. Hey, let me hit, let me in on this. I just always assume, like, Navy is exclusively Ships. water stuff. <laughs> well, they kind of, like, nibble away at the Air Force, because the Air Force is like, we want to launch from the ocean. The Navy's <laughs> like, sup? <laughs> So we have these uh we have these boats you can launch from those if you want to. <laughs> the Air Force is just kind of like, okay. <laughs> and then in uh, June 1961, three and a half years after the launch of Sputnik One, the Air Force used used resources of the United States Space Surveillance Network to catalog 115 Earth-orbiting satellites. So. Three years after Sputnik 1, there's already over 100 satellites up in the air. And early satellites were constructed as one-off designs with growth in geosynchronous satellite communication. Multiple satellites began to be built on single model platforms called satellite buses. The first standardized satellite bus design was the HS-333 GeoComSat, launched in 1972. And then the largest artificial satellite currently orbiting Earth is the International Space Station. Now, as soon as satellites got up and running, we started using it for other things. (laughs) Namely, the United States Space Surveillance Network, mm-hmm. also known as the SSN, also known as the Social Security Number, a division <laughs> of the United States Strategic Command, which has been tracking objects in Earth's orbit since 1957, when the Soviet Union opened the space age with the launch of Sputnik 1. Since then, the Social Security Number, I mean, Space <laughs> Surveillance Network, it's actually going to be tricky for me to <laughs> overcome that. That <laughs> is commonly what I refer to as an SSN. Yeah. Um, since then, the Space Surveillance Network has tracked more than 26,000 objects. The Space Surveillance Network currently tracks more than 8,000 man-made orbiting objects. The rest have re-entered Earth's atmosphere and disintegrated, or survived re-entry and impacted the Earth. The Space Surveillance Network really struggling with that tracks mm-hmm. objects that are 10 centimeters in diameter or larger so they go pretty small uh those now orbiting the earth range from satellites weighing several tons to pieces of spent rocket bodies weighing only 10 pounds about seven percent are operational satellites around 560 where the rest are space debris. Now, mind you, this isn't the total amount of active satellites. This is just the ones that the United States cares about. Um, The United States Strategic Command is primarily interested in active satellites, but it also tracks down space debris upon re-entry that might otherwise be mistaken for incoming missiles. (laughs) Just so you know, know, people don't have to freak out too much. (laughs) A search of the NSSDC Master Catalog at the end of October of 2010 listed 6,578 satellites launched into orbit since 1957, the latest being Chang'e 2 on 1st of October 2010. Of course, that was back in 2010, October (laughs) 2010. So you can imagine that launches of satellites are a pretty routine thing. Right. So, here we have an interesting bit. Um, 
When satellites reach the end of their mission, satellite operators have the option of deorbiting the satellite, leaving the satellite in its current orbit, or moving the satellite to a graveyard orbit, which has a link. Historically, due to budgetary constraints at the beginning of satellite missions, satellites were rarely designed to be deorbited. One example of this practice is the satellite Vanguard 1. Launched in 1958, it is the fourth man-made satellite put in geocentric orbit, which still was still in orbit as of August 2009. So that thing spent 51 years up in space. Hmm. And instead of being deorbited, most satellites are left in their current orbit or moved to the graveyard orbit, as mentioned in the previous paragraph. As of 2002, the FCC requires all geostationary satellites to commit to moving to a graveyard orbit at the end of their operational life prior to launch. In cases of uncontrolled deorbiting, the major variable is the solar flux. The minor and the minor variables and components and form factors of satellite itself. And the gravitational perturbations generated by the sun and the moon, as well as those exercised by large mountain ranges, whether above or below sea level. The nominal breakup altitude due to the aerodynamic dynamic forces and temperatures is 78 kilometers, with a range between 72 and 84 kilometers. Solar panels, however, are destroyed before any other component at altitudes between 90 and 95 kilometers. I'm very curious about this graveyard orbit and how far out that is, or where that is. It has to be pretty far out, because I feel like it's like a safe distance away to make yeah. sure that like nothing bad happens with a bunch of space debris all at once. Yeah. But at the same time... If they're all out there, <laughs> all it's going to take is, like, a couple of things. Yeah. Hmm. But at that point, if there's something that could, like, come out of space and knock multiple satellites back into Earth's atmosphere, we have larger problems. Namely, whatever that large thing out there is knocking <laughs> those satellites back into Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. So there's a list here of some launch-capable countries... Uh, this list includes countries with an independent capability of states to place satellites in orbit, including production of the necessary launch vehicle. Note that many more countries may have the capability to design and build satellites, but they're not able to launch them, instead relying on foreign launch services. This list does not consider those numerous countries, but only lists those capable of launching satellites indigenously and the date this capability was first demonstrated. The list includes the European Space Agency, a multinational state organization, but does not include private consortiums. So, that being said, we have, of course, the Soviet Union with the first launch in 1957, the United States having their first successful launch in 1958, France joining the party in 1965, Japan launching their first satellite in 1970, the same year that China would also do so, the United Kingdom launched their first satellite in 1971, 
India launched their first in 1980. Israel, which I didn't know had a space program, <laughs> launched their first in 1988. Russia <laughs> launched their first in well, 1992 because they de-Soviet Union. They de-Soviet Union, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or did they? Ooh. That, so they had to reset. Yes. They, they, they had to they lose their title. Back to yep. <laughs> no, we had it. Now they don't. Now they're eighth. <laughs> or not they're tied tied for <laughs> They're tied for dash. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the dash is there because they're former, you know, Soviet countries. Uh, 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 Ukraine yeah. being the next one, That's also ninety two. Okay. Uh, so it's like they're previously on the list, mm-hmm. but now yeah. they're that. Okay. And number nine is Iran as of two thousand and nine. Much to the chagrin of the uh, United Nations, I'm sure. <laughs> and the North Korea situation has escalated because apparently, as of 2012, they did launch hmm. a satellite successfully. So, North yeah, Korea can do that. Really funky name. Oh, yeah. Quang My Ong Song. Quang <laughs> <laughs> My Ong Song 3, Unit 2. <laughs> you know, I have to wonder. What's 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 North Korea doing with uh, their space program? <laughs> I wonder what the what what's at Unit Two Two? What's the Unit Two Four? Yeah. What's the Unit Two Four Six Eight? It's <laughs> a good question. I mean, I really hope that with a name like Quang Myung Song, <laughs> it's just some sort of like large plot to promote. K-pop on a worldwide ba- level because <laughs> it's really delightful music that is. But oh, yeah. um, I have a feeling, just because of North Korea being North Korea, then probably isn't that. Mm. Probably isn't anything nearly as happy. Yeah. Well, why don't we go to Quang Myong's song and see what the deal is? Oh, actually, before we do so, there is. An attempted launches section below here, which mentions North Korea's first uh-huh, launches. Okay. Claimed launches of Quang Myung Song 1 and Quang Myung Song 2 satellites in 1998 and 2009, but the United States, Russian, and other officials and weapons experts later reported that the rockets failed to send a satellite into orbit. <laughs> if that was, in fact, the goal. So yeah. they were essentially just attempting a uh, record, and they were like, hey, we got one, in, we got, we sent a rocket up. Yep. It's like, N- yeah, but you didn't actually There's nothing up get there. in. <laughs> There's nothing up there. It, w- it wasn't successful, so uh, you're not on the list. Uh, the first, yeah. So let's check out the successful one here, Quang My Own Song 3. Man, it took them a long time. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you have to starve an entire nation to get <laughs> enough resources to be able to do this. <laughs> I mean, go ask the Soviet Union. They know. Uh <laughs> All right, so are we going to Unit 2? Quang Myung Song 3, Unit 2. Okay. In English, it translates to Bright Star 3, hmm. Unit 2. <laughs> the first satellite successfully launched from North Korea, an Earth observation spacecraft, <laughs> launched in December of 2012 in order to replace the original Quang Myung Song 3, which failed to reach orbit in April of 2012. The United States Security Council... Er, sorry. Might as well be, but... <laughs> what I mean to say is the United Nations Security Council condemned the satellite launch 
regarding it as a violation of the ban on North Korean ballistic missiles, missile tests, as the rocket technology is the same. Mm. And it came during a period when the DPRK was commemorating the first anniversary of the death of former leader Kim Jong-il and just before the first South Korean domestic launch of a satellite and the South Korean presidential election on 19th of November 2012, the successful launch makes the DPRK the 10th space power capable of putting satellites in orbit using its own launch vehicles. Hmm. And they declared the launch successful. And as mentioned before, they had claimed that the first two were successful, but the American military was like, yeah, no. Yeah, this is the first one they got NORAD to agree on that on it with them. Like they, they actually were like, Yeah, okay. You put a satellite up there. Good good job. <laughs> Several days after the launch, Western sources claimed that the satellite had achieved orbit, but stated that the satellite seemed to be tumbling and was probably out of control. <laughs> Not surprising. The name Kwang Myong Song is richly symbolic for the North Korean nationalism and the Kim family cult. It's weird that we're calling them that now. <laughs> it's weird that Kim family cult is now a link. And while Soviet records recount that the late North Korean leader Kim Jong-il was born in the village of Vyatskoye near Khabarovsk in the Russian Far East, DPRK internal internal sources claim that Kim was born on Mount Baikdu. Yep. And that on that day, a bright lodestar appeared in the sky. So he was born on Mount Bike. No, he was <laughs> born in the Russian Far East. He's actually a Russian. So he was not born on a mountain. No. Okay. Leave Mount Bike <laughs> out of it. Now, the launch of Kwong Myung Song 3, Unit 2 was the fourth North Korean attempt to launch a satellite, and, yeah, we've been over this. Yep. Now, what what is the DPRK? Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, that's just their fancy name to distinguish them from, you know, South Korea. Gotcha. So, um... There was a pre-launch announcement on December 1st, 2012, when the Korean Central News Agency reported that the Korean Committee of Space Technology informed them that they planned to launch another working satellite, second version of Kwang Myong Song 3, manufactured by its own efforts and with its own technology, true to the behests of leader Kim (laughs) Jong-il, with a prospective launch window of December 10th through 22nd of 2012 given. The launcher splashdown zones were reported to the International Maritime Organization, indicating a polar orbit was intended. On December 8, 2012, KCNA reported that the Korean Central News Agency 
answered the question raised by the Korean Central News Agency as regards the launch of the second version of Quang Mounds on 3 Satellite and also reported that the launch period was extended to 29th of December of 2012. And North Korea claims that the satellite would estimate crop yields and collect weather data as well as assess the country's forest coverage and natural resources. The country also claims that the satellite weighed about 100 kilograms, or 220 pounds, and that its planned lifetime was about two years. So the when they launched the rocket, they the rocket performed a dog leg maneuver to increase its inclination sufficiently to attain sun-synchronous orbit. And I have no idea what a dogleg maneuver is, and there is no link to it. But regardless, that's what got up into space. Um, the U.S. Space Command was, of course, very curious about this uh, <laughs> space launch, having suspicion that it might not be quite so savory of a space yeah. launch. <laughs> so they began to track three objects from the launch, giving Kwang Myung Song 3 the satellite catalog number 39026 and the international designator 2012072A. They later began tracking a fourth object that was related to the launch. So, <laughs> the following day, United States tra- officials tracking the satellite reported that it appeared to be tumbling out of control in its orbit. Meanwhile, though, South Korea, the good Korea, <laughs> uh, sources had said that the satellite was in fact orbiting normally so hmm. who knows maybe making fun of the complete incompetence of the North Koreans <laughs> is unfounded <laughs> maybe they're only incompetent because they're terrible terrible to they're really terrible to their people yeah yeah they may not act, they may actually have a scientist that can do a thing that mankind has done numerous <laughs> times before 6,000 times before <laughs> Anyway. Now, I mean, but even though South Korea is advocating that it is orbiting normally, it was also Spain, Italy, and Britain that oh, well. confirmed <laughs> that it seemed to be tumbling. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, okay, maybe, maybe it wasn't so good. <laughs> so South Korean missile experts examined components of the missile that... Uh, fell back to Earth. Initially, they reported the components were of poor quality and some were, in <laughs> fact, foreign-made. Further examination revealed that most of the conver- components were produced domestically in North Korea. They were effective for the launch, but found mostly to be crude, unreliable, <laughs> and inefficient. The rocket design was based on older technologies of the 60s and 70s. The design of the rocket engine was almost identical to the one built in Iran. Hmm. It's almost as though, you know, I shared some schematics there. (laughs) Oh, boy. My favorite part. The reaction part. (laughs) The part where we just read all of the, like, North Korean ecstaticness about this (laughs) little satellite that didn't really launch too great. Um, At noon local time, the Korean Central News Agency released a news report on the launch. Pyongyang, December 12th, KCNA, the second version of satellite 
Kwang Myong Song 3 successfully lifted off from the Sohei Space Center in Chosun County, North Fiongan Province by carrier rocket Unha 3. I'm assuming that means Unit 3. I don't know. On Wednesday, the satellite entered its present orbit. The report was followed by a more <coughs> detailed report later in the afternoon, stating scientists and technicians of the DPRK launched the second version of satellite Kwangmyongsung 3 into its orbit by carrier rocket Una 3, true to the last instructions of leader Kim Jong il. Carrier rocket Una 3 with the second version of satellite Kwangmyongsung 3 stopped atop blasted off from the Sohei Space Center in Cholsan County, North Pyongyang Province at 9.49 and 46 seconds on December 12th. Jush 101, <laughs> which is 2012 to the North Koreans, bless their souls. Uh, the satellite entered its present orbit at 9.59 and 13 seconds, 9 minutes, 27 seconds after the liftoff. The satellite is going around the polar orbit at 499.7 kilometers perigree altitude and 584.18 kilometers apogee altitude at the angle of inclination of 97.4 degrees. Its cycle is 95 minutes and 29 seconds. Now... What is the difference between perigee, perigee and apogee? Lowest and highest? I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that sounds good. All right. <laughs> um, the successful launch of the satellite... Oh, wait, no. The scientific and technological satellite is fitted with survey and communication devices essential for the observation of the Earth. Essential. <laughs> the successful launch of the satellite is a proud fruition of the Workers' Party of Korea's policy of attaching importance to the science and technology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is also an event of great turn oh. <laughs> in developing the country's science, technology, and economy by fully exercising the independent right to use space for peaceful purposes. <laughs> At a time when great yearnings and reverence for Kim Jong-il <laughs> pervade the whole country, its scientists and technicians brilliantly carried out his behests to launch a scientific and technological satellite in 2012, the year marking the 100th birth anniversary of President Kim Il-sung. <laughs> wow, so then on December 20th, the Korean Central Television aired a 27-minute documentary Jesus Christ. titled Successful Launch of Kwang Myong Song 3-2 Under the Leadership of Dear Respected Marshal Kim Jong-un. The documentary showed footage of the preparations for the rocket launch and how Kim Jong-un was involved in the preparations. And... Internally, there were celebrations. Government vans with loudspeakers brought the news of the launch of Kwang Myongsong 3 to Pyongyang soon after the launch. On the 14th of December, state television in North Korea broadcast images of hundreds of thousands of people celebrating the successful launch in Pyongyang's Central Square, while military and scientific personnel gave speeches. According to the news report, Kim Jong-un had ordered more satellite launches after achieving orbit with Kwang Myung Song 3. 
According to a report from Radio Free Asia following the launch, the KCNA alerted people to launch a special news announcement. Afterward, people throughout the country were pulled from work and school to participate in mass celebrations. <laughs> Those in Shinju, Pyongyang, were forced to dance in freezing weather <laughs> to celebrate North Korea's success. Forced to dance. Forced to dance. <laughs> See, that's the fun part about North Korea. You might be starving, you might be miserable, you might be uh, terrified about your family and you being killed at any moment for potentially disgracing any part of the powerful party in question, but you know something? Sometimes they throw a party, and nobody parties like the Workers' Party of Korea. Yeah. They're getting people to dance. That's, yeah. That's all that matters. It's a healthful mm. practice. It's happy. Everybody's yeah. happy there. Then, in when freezing life weather. Life sucks. You just keep on dancing. Keep when life happy. gives you freezing, you make it dancing. <laughs> Wow, so uh, other countries weren't so happy about it, apparently. Australia called the launch provocative and irresponsible act and violation of the United Nations Security Council resolutions. Brazil called for North Korea to comply in full with the applicable resolutions of the UN Security Council and asked for the resuming of negotiations on peace and security in the Korean Peninsula. And yep, we got uh, Canada also condemned the missile launch and said clearly uh, North Korea's actions clearly demonstrate its willful defiance of its international obligations. And he also added that the regime has shown disregard for its people by funding military and nuclear programs before providing basic necessities for its citizens. China offers a uh, concerned viewpoint, uh, hoping that parties concerned can take a long-term perspective, deal with this calmly and appropriately, avoid taking actions that may further escalate the situation, and jointly maintain the peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula and in the region as a whole. So not outright saying, hey, don't do that, <laughs> but saying, uh, so please don't start more war. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Japan said it is extremely regrettable that North Korea went through with the launch despite our calls to exercise restraint. Our country cannot tolerate this. We strongly protest to North Korea. Iran said, uh, hey, congratulations. Yeah, it looks like a lot. Some people tried to be, like, tactfully like, hey, that's not that cool to do that. Some people were just like, hey, North Korea sucks. Why are they doing this? And then other people... I think, is Iran the only one that uh, congratulated them? Well, Vietnam almost did, saying that we expect relevant parties will not take actions harmful to the region's peace and stability. <laughs> Basically saying, hey, I mean, they launched a rocket. Yeah, who cares? This is just a satellite. It's not even going to work. It doesn't, it's not even going to work. Like, why? Why go to war over it? Why Why am I making mad? Just let them have this. Just let them have this little stupid rocket. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. In Vietnam, there's a thing or two about 
potentially starting wars with other large international powers, so, you know. <laughs> they have some wisdom there. I'm, uh, I'm not actually disagreeing with them entirely. But yeah, looks like, uh, yep, Iran is the only supporter. Vietnam is the only neutral party. <laughs> Everybody else completely condemns the whole entire action. Yes. Which is, you know, not all that surprising. Yeah. Okay, well, from here, I was kind of hoping there would be, like, a more, uh, there would be another article on North Korea's space program in specific, hmm. but I feel like they just kind of, like, Korean got this Central one... News Agency, that's some. I think that's worth checking out, just because they might have some entertaining stories. Yeah, this, this should be good. Alright, the Korean Central News Agency, or KCNA, as you may have heard us refer to it in the prior article, is the state news agency of North Korea established in December of 1946. The agency portrays the views of the Workers' Party of Korea and the North Korean government for foreign consumption. KCNA is headquartered in the capital city of Pyongyang. In South Korea, access to KCNA... Dot KP and KCNA.co.jp are blocked by the <laughs> South Korean government. Just in case you know any of it was believable or even sort of good. <laughs> so, this news agency is the only news agency in North Korea. And it has daily reports of news for all the North Korean news organizations, including newspapers, radio, television broadcasts. And uh, in December 1996, KCNA began publishing its news articles on the internet with its web server located in Japan. Since October 2010, stories have been published on a news site controlled from Pyongyang. And output has been significantly increased to include world stories with no specific link to North Korea, as well as news from countries that have strong DPRK ties. And in addition to Korean, KCNA releases news articles in English, Russian, and Spanish. Access to its websites along with other North Korean news sites has been blocked by South Korea since 2004. Huh and can be accessed only through the government's authorization. Wow. As well as serving as a news agency, it is also alleged to conduct clandestine intelligence collection. Huh? <laughs> How does that work? I don't know. Well, alright. KCNA has press exchange agreements with around 46 foreign news agencies, including ITAR, TASS, and Xinhua News Agency and South Korea's Yonhap News Agency, with correspondence and bureau in six countries, including Russia and China. In 2004, the agency had employed 2,000 people. According to its website, KCNA speaks for the Workers' Party of Korea and the DPRK government. The agency has been described as the official organ. In 1964... One of its first official activities, Kim Jong-il, visited the KCNA headquarters and said the agency should be propagating 
the revolutionary ideology of the leader, Kim Il-sung, widely throughout the world. However, the agency is also said to offer a unique insight into the North Korean mentality. And so a talk given to officials at KCNA on June 12, 1964, outlines, for the, outlines the function of the news agency. In order to become a powerful ideological weapon of our party, the Korean Central News Agency must provide a news service in accordance with the idea and intention of the great leader, comrade Kim Jong-soon, establish Jush There's that word again. firmly in its work and fully embody the party spirit, the working class spirit, and the spirit of serving the people. It must pay serious attention to each word, to each dot of the writings it releases, because they express the standpoint of our party and the government of our republic. Under the principle and guideline on the work of ideological propaganda and agitation put by the country's ruling party, the Workers' Party of Korea, the agency generally reports only good news about the country that is intended to encourage people it encourage its people and project a positive image abroad. Uh, nonetheless, it has on occasion acknowledged food shortages in the country. The Ryongchon disaster was also reported in April 2004 after a delay of two days. So, KCNA articles generally revolve on several specific themes, um, such as detailing performances on cultural events, usually attended by various dignitaries, or decreeing the actions and uh, attitudes of the United States, Japan, uh, South Korea, and other nations, particularly concerning military cooperation, historical events, or trade among those nations. And personal attacks on American, Japanese, and South Korean leaders are not unknown. Airing the official DPRK position on ongoing disputes with Japan over such matters as Chongryon and Comfort Women. Not entirely sure what Chongryon is. For all of their uh, <clears throat> advanced uh, technologies, <laughs> uh, their New Year's editorials, and they usually were just tributes to the leader. However, after 19 years of that, Kim Jong Un addressed the nation in 2013 with a live television speech on New Year's instead. <laughs> Yep, so they just portray the country in a good light, and it's the only source of news. Yep, seems so. <laughs> so there you have it from Iverson Fielet to Korean Central News Agency. Go ahead and visit facebook.com slash TWCpodcast. Please like and follow. Go to iTunes, give us a rating and review. And also, you can go to Google Play and rate us there, and you can find new episodes on twc.airtoribio.com. And I would like to thank Louis Armstrong for our theme song, and Billy Murray for our outro song. Hmm. Thanks again for joining us. I was Eric. And I was John. And this was the Wikipedia Chronicles. Wow. That was Billy Murray, huh? (laughs) Bill Murray's playing us out. (laughs) Cool.
I like that. It's a good omen. It's a good omen. A handsome damsel, sweet and shy. She passed us once, she passed again, and passed us up completely then. My friend then turned to me to say, I thought that was your sister May. But I smiled at him and said, Nay, nay, nothing like that in our family. Nothing like that on our family tree. Oh, me, oh, my. Good things always seem to pass us by. Nothing like that in our cozy cot. Nothing like that has our family. Thank you. 